It's week two of the study of First Timothy. And this is going to be an interesting one. I'm not sure if it's going to be a topic of great interest to you or not. Today we're going to talk about the law. Anybody get excited about that? Anybody wake up thinking, I hope we talk about the law today? We're talking about the law of Moses today, the old covenant law. It's called the Mosaic Law. And before we do that, I want to let you know that if English is not your first language and it would be helpful for you to read along in another language, you can do that live. There's a live transcription at efree.org slash translate. You can go there on your phone or tablet and read along in whatever language is most helpful to you. And also, if you don't have a Bible with you, we recommend the YouVersion Bible app. It's a great app that lets you do reading plans. It'll notify you every day to remind you to read the Bible. You can read with other people and see how each other are tracking along with their Bible study. It's a great way to get into God's Word. So I want you to think about the Old Testament law today. And does anyone know a word for the Old Testament law? Anyone know what that word is? The Torah. Somebody got it over here. The Hebrew word is Torah. And that means instruction or law. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. This is what Jewish people would refer to as the Torah. Uh, The Greek word for it, anyone know what that is? It's the Pentateuch, which means five books. It's the first five books of our Bible and the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the Torah. And these five books are structured as a narrative that walks you through the process of God creating the world and setting aside a people for himself to be his representatives in the world. And he has certain expectations for those people that are are, uh, codified in a covenant. So there's an agreement. A covenant is like an agreement. It's sort of like a contract, but it's a very serious agreement where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God and you will be my representatives, you, not everybody else, just you. And this is a covenant that I make with you and there are certain terms. There are some agreements here that you need to keep this and I promise to keep this and we agree to do these things and that's the the covenant. We call it the old covenant. These terms are called the mitzvah. Mitzvah means precept or commandment. And so there are all these commandments or precepts in the Torah that these people, the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, were supposed to follow as a part of their covenant agreement with God. There are 613 of these commandments. They're really more than that, but there are 613 that the Jewish people have recognized as these are the key ones. If you boil it all down, 613 that we need to follow, 613 mitzvah. And Orthodox Jews today would point to those and say, we still need to follow all of these things. And certainly the Jewish people back in the days of the Old Testament were expected to follow these things. These commandments, by the way, are all in your Bible. All of these commandments, I'm going to give you a selection of them right now, a few mitzvah for you to know about. Know that there is a God. Okay, that's a good one. Know that God is one. Do not worship idols, so don't worship any false God. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Men should not shave the hair off the sides of their heads. Just let those grow. Do not tattoo the skin. Do not walk outside the city boundary on Shabbat. Do not eat or drink on Yom Kippur. 
Do not wear cloth made with two different kinds of fabrics, materials put together. Do not eat pork. Do not eat shrimp, lobster, clams, oysters, scallops, crabs, or any seafood that doesn't have fins and scales. Now, these are all in your Bible. So I'm curious, how many of you follow all of these rules perfectly? Anybody? Anybody? Don't eat pork. Don't eat any kind of seafood that doesn't have fins and scales. Don't uh, eat or drink on Yom Kippur, right? Any of you even know when Yom Kippur is this year? It's September 27th. You heathens, you should know that. Mark that on your calendars. No food or drink September 27th for Yom Kippur. Are you careful to inspect the tags before you buy a shirt to make sure that there aren't two different kinds of fabric being woven together to make that. That is against God's law. Are you careful not to leave the boundary of your city on Shabbat? That's Saturday. There are two places in St. Louis that have a boundary marker on them. One is in Chesterfield. One, I think, is in Ladue or or maybe Town and Country, something like that, so that you can be sure that you are not leaving your area. And Orthodox Jews will specifically move to those areas so that they have a a boundary marker that they can walk around in on Shabbat, on, on Saturday, the Sabbath, so that they are not violating this law. Here's why I think this is worth talking about. One of the accusations that often gets made against Christians is that we pick and choose what we want to follow from the Bible. So we like this command, but not that one. We want to force this one on other people, but this one's not so convenient for our lifestyle right now, so we're not going to do that one. And let's just be honest. Intelligent people expect consistency. They expect a cohesiveness in what we believe. It needs to make sense with each other. There can't be things that are mutually exclusive. How can we say that some parts of the Bible are necessary and ignore other parts that aren't convenient if you really like bacon or shrimp or bacon-wrapped shrimp? Those are really good. So here's the question. I want you to think about this all morning. Why do we follow some parts of the Bible and not others? Why do we follow some parts of the Bible, but not all of the Bible? When I grew up, I was in a really small church, and it seemed like this was kind of the dirty little secret, right? Every now and then, somebody would pull out a passage from Leviticus or Deuteronomy to try to prove why someone should or shouldn't do something. But I had a Bible too, and I kept reading. And I looked at the other verses in the same chapter and went, I'm pretty sure you don't follow all of this stuff. So why are you pointing to this regulation to support what you're saying someone should or shouldn't do. Now, this is not a new problem. This is something that Christians have faced since there have been Christians. The early New Testament church dealt with the same thing. How can you Christians do this but not this? You need to do the whole thing. Otherwise, you're being hypocrites, aren't you? Why do we follow some parts of the Bible and not others? Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 11, but we're going to start in verse 5 because it's important to get some context for what we're going to see in verse 8. So starting in verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is the leader of a large multi-community church in Ephesus, and he says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things. 
and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. Now, that was the part from last week. Here is where everything is new for this week. We know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Before we go any further into this passage, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me and ask God to guide our study this morning. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, this is your word and we wanna learn from it this morning. We want you to teach us, God. So I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to, to hear what you have to say. Show us areas that we need to refine in our lives, areas that maybe we have thought the, the wrong things Areas where we have been involved in behavior that maybe we shouldn't have, Lord, convict us through this, but also encourage us. Teach us how to live our lives. Help us to grow more and more like you from what we learned this morning and help us to apply it, not just today, but this whole week. And in your name we pray, amen. So, why do we follow some parts of the Bible and not others. Now, if you're not a Christian, this may have been a real sticking point for you, okay? And I'm well aware of that. There may be people here, there are almost always people here who are just kind of checking this out. And you've thought of this before, and you're wondering, why would they follow this but not this? You know, if you dive too deep into the Bible, there are certain things there that we just don't do anymore. Why is that? And even if you are a follower of Jesus, this may have really bothered you. To understand how Paul views those Old Testament laws, the law of Moses, the Torah, we need to first understand the problem that he was addressing right here in 1 Timothy, in the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is one example of where this problem was happening, but it was actually happening in many of the New Testament churches, and so many of Paul's letters address this same basic problem. So look at verse six with me, and we'll explore this and unpack it in a little more detail. Paul says, but some people have missed this whole point. And we covered this last week. They, were, uh, they didn't have clear consciences. They weren't acting out of genuine faith. They were not being loving. That was all last week. If you missed that, you can watch it online. And then he says they have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. He mentioned myths and spiritual pedigrees, things they added on to faith in Jesus. And then he says they want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses. So this was a big deal to them. This was central to their position and their teaching, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. And this is the new part for us today. He says, we know that the law is good when used correctly. We know that the law is good when used correctly. That means Paul is saying that there are ways that this can be used incorrectly, which is what Timothy is observing in the church in Ephesus. But Paul says it's good when it's used correctly. So some of the difficult people in the church in Ephesus were using the law as their foundation uh, and their self-proclaimed expertise in the law to teach people speculations and myths and extra things that they wanted people to believe in and follow. We don't know exactly what those were. 
Paul says myths and spiritual pedigrees or genealogies. Timothy was obviously familiar with what this meant. We have some theories. We don't know for sure what that was. It's really not that important, but Timothy knew it, and so Paul didn't have to explain it to him. But it was something to do with the fact that they were relying on the Old Testament laws as a foundation for obeying those laws and the extra Jewish customs, myths, speculations, whatever extra things they were adding onto that. Paul had a special term for these types of people. He called them Judaizers. We see that in the book of Galatians. He calls them Judaizers because they claim to follow Jesus, but they travel around almost like missionaries to people who have trusted in Jesus or are thinking about trusting in Jesus or just learning about Jesus and interested in following him. And their goal is to try to enforce Jewish practices and laws and customs onto these new non-Jewish believers, the Gentiles that were coming to follow Jesus. So they were adding the law of Moses and their Jewish customs, traditions, myths, speculations, all that stuff on top of the law. Now, keeping the law of Moses is not such a bad thing. And if that's a lifestyle choice you want to make, I don't really think that's a problem. You can cut out pork and you can cut out certain types of seafood. You can wear the right clothing. You can do all that. And if that's just a lifestyle choice, okay. But that's not what this was. This was saying that following Jesus, believing in Jesus was not enough. You had to also follow the law of Moses and the Jewish customs they added on top of that to be made right with God. So Paul says in verse 9, the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It's for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy. What is he saying? The law of Moses is not for people who have been redeemed by Christ. People who have been redeemed by Jesus and are followers of Jesus are not characterized by lawlessness and rebelliousness, by being ungodly and sinful, by considering nothing sacred and defiling what is holy. Not that Christians are perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We are not perfect yet, but we're not characterized by these things. And Paul is saying the law is for these people, not for followers of Jesus. And the implication of this is huge because it takes away the foundation for the false teaching. If the law is not meant for Christians, for followers of Jesus, then you can't use it as a basis to build your speculations and myths and theories and force people to follow them. But that gives me a very interesting question, and I hope it does you as well. Why does Paul say that the law of Moses is not for followers of Jesus? He doesn't really explain that here in 1 Timothy because he doesn't need to. Timothy was mentored by Paul. Timothy understood what he meant. This is just a reminder to Timothy. But unless we read Paul's other letters, we don't understand what Paul is saying here. So we have to go to another letter of his, the letter to the church in Galatia. If you want to turn there, it's Galatians chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at. The context here is that the Judaizers in Galatia are trying to convince the Galatian Christians or those considering following Jesus to follow the law of Moses for salvation along with following Jesus. And here is Paul's response. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. 
You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the Scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, and I love this about Paul. And in fact, I've actually skipped several verses there. I don't know if you've noticed. They all flow together, but Paul gets very redundant in this passage. He's really trying to make this point. He says the same type of thing over and over again. And then as if that's not enough, he says, let me put it yet another way. The law was our guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? It's very important. He's saying that the law was good. The law was helpful. The law was a guardian. The law was a protector. The law was necessary. It was good. God gave it for a reason. Don't minimize the value of the law of Moses. And back in 1 Timothy, Paul is about to explain that the law of Moses is not for Christians. He doesn't want Timothy to walk away thinking law bad, faith good. The law of Moses is just done and and gone away with and we don't need it anymore and forget that thing. The law is a bad thing. Let's fight against the law because these difficult people are using the law as the foundation for their teaching. No, that's not the point here. And that's why Paul says to 1 Timothy, we know that the law is good when used correctly. But notice something very important about Galatians chapter 3. All of these statements about the law are in the past tense. The law was our guardian, but we no longer need that guardian. Paul is teaching that followers of Jesus are not under the law of Moses. That means none of the Mosaic laws are binding on Christians today. None of them. And that makes some people very uncomfortable. Because I'll bet some of you are thinking, uh, hold on, there's some pretty good stuff in there. There are some things I'd like to hold on to. Like, don't murder for one. Can we keep that one? That was a good one. Don't steal, that one's also pretty good. But I'm going to say something that may sound very controversial to you. But I promise you that it is true And I ask you to stick with me to the end. Even if you're watching online right now, don't turn off the computer or phone or whatever. The Ten Commandments are not binding on Christians today. Take a deep breath. I know. I know they're the Ten Commandments, they're a big deal. Really, they're not binding on, you mean that thing we fight to get in courtrooms and and wanted to keep in schools and want monuments of? Are you saying that thing doesn't apply to Christians today? Yes, that is exactly what I am saying. But not just me. That's what God is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Now, wait a minute. How certain are you that that's what Paul really means? The, whole, now the Ten Commandments is the core of the law of Moses. That was the initial Mosaic law. And then everything else kind of got built in around that. Are you certain that Paul is saying that the whole thing, the whole law of Moses, including that central part, is no longer binding on Christians? Are you sure about that? 
Let me show you some verses. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Let me take you to another letter of Paul's. This one's to the Romans. In chapter six, he says, sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law, which includes the 10 commandments. Instead, as a replacement, you live under the freedom of God's grace. A few chapters later, chapter 10, he says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So how certain am I? Well, pretty certain. We are not under the requirements of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And this is something that has confused a lot of people because what then do we do with the law of Moses? Some people think that we should still follow all of it. There are some, certainly Jewish communities and some Christian communities that think we should follow all of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. If you read the New Testament, just the passages we've just read, obviously that cannot be true. Some people think that the law of Moses can be divided into different categories. Maybe you've heard this before. There's the civil law and the ceremonial law and the moral law. And we can pick and choose the different aspects of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus and Genesis and we can sort of plunk them into their different buckets, these three buckets, and we can say, well, the civil ones, those are gone now and the ceremonial ones, those are gone now. It's the moral ones, whichever ones we threw into the moral bucket, those are the ones we have to follow. Here's the problem with that perspective and it's a popular one. You may have heard it before. You will find evidence for it nowhere in the Bible. It is completely manufactured to try to deal with this problem of what do we do with the law of Moses when there's some stuff we really like in there. We want to keep those. But there's this other stuff that really looks inconsistent if we don't follow. So there's arbitrary buckets that people have been created that are not based on any biblical designation so that we can follow some and not follow others. And it certainly seems very inconsistent. If you read Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, all of these letters have statements, I'm not even gonna share all of them with you today, that make it abundantly clear the law of Moses is no longer applicable. And Paul did not say Christ has ended the system of laws and regulations except for this third. He just said he fulfilled it. There's something new instead. We're no longer under the law. You're not bound by that law. That is the whole thing, the whole agreement, the whole covenant. You're not under it. It's a covenant between God and the children of Abraham, specifically at a certain time, in a certain place, a certain region. In fact, the other nations were not bound by the Mosaic law. This was a covenant agreement between God and his people at this time. And so if you were outside the land of Israel, you were not expected to follow that law. You were not under that covenant agreement. So to try to slice it up and apply some parts but not all of it, it's inconsistent. It's not supported in the Bible. 
Of course, some people try to just avoid the topic altogether. It's kind of the dirty little secret of Christianity for them. What do we do with all those laws that we don't like, but there's some that we do? We just don't talk about the ones we don't like. We don't have too many sermons about shellfish or shrimp, right, or bacon. We, we don't do that. We just don't. We'll just leave those alone. We come to the, how many of you have ever gone through an entire book study on Leviticus? It's just not a common thing that we do. Maybe some of you have, but it's not very common. We avoid it. Now, here's the real concern for me and why I think it's even worth talking about this today. Partly, it's in the text. It's in 1 Timothy. So when we said we were going to go through a study of 1 Timothy, we kind of made this unavoidable. We had to talk a little bit about the law. We had to explain this. But here's the big concern. There are many people who look at the inconsistency with how Christians try to apply the laws of Moses, the old covenant law, And I know many people just do it without even thinking about it. And people see this inconsistency and they see the commands being plucked out of the Old Testament with, out of the Torah with total ignorance to what is around them in the passage and the, the other verses that are right there that we don't follow. And they look at that inconsistency and they say, Christians are a bunch of what? Hypocrites. I've heard this. I'm sure most of you have heard this. Why don't you follow this one? Why don't you do this? But you're saying we should follow this passage over here right next to it. Why do we do that? The great irony is that Christian leaders for decades have been warning about the dangers of postmodernism and how people don't believe in objective truth anymore and everything is relative. And yet there are people out there that are exploring Christianity and looking to the church and trying to find some objective truth and they are finding in some cases the opposite. They are finding our own version of moral relativism where we have plucked out the morals we like and we've ignored the ones we don't. And they look at that and they say, why would I ever believe in that? So I have an answer to the question. The question of why do we follow some parts of the Bible and not others? And the answer is, that's what the Bible teaches. We are not under the law of Moses. And the only way we get into trouble here is by trying to apply parts of it, but not other parts of it. That's where we create inconsistency. That's where we create this mutually exclusive relationship where people are questioning us and going, this is illogical, this doesn't make sense. No, we have a reasonable faith. We have a logical faith that makes perfect sense. It is perfectly consistent and it is right there in the text. We are not under the law of Moses, the old covenant, any part of it, and that includes the 10 commandments. Now I know that raises some questions. What does this mean? What do we do with this? What do we do with the law of Moses? Do we throw it out? Do we completely unhitch ourselves from the old covenant? Stop talking about it? Let it slip away as a a meaningless collection of rules that no longer apply to us? What about the ones we like? Like don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery. Those are still pretty good ideas, right? How can you say that those no longer apply? 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. Paul is talking and he says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. 
when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, and that's what that is, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, everything from the Torah, all the mitzvahs, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. Remember when I said, if it's a lifestyle choice, good for you. It's, it's teaching that it's necessary that's a problem. When I am with the Gentiles, Paul says, I do not follow the Jewish law. I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But, and this is what is key, this is what is so important, I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. And this may very well be new teaching to a lot of you. Because for some reason, we have not been very clear on this in the church. Among scholars, this is, this is well understood. But it's not something that has often made its way to the seats. How does the law work today? How do we treat the law of Moses? Paul is making a distinction here that is very important. And he is saying, I do not follow the Jewish law. That doesn't mean I don't follow the law of God. I follow the law of Christ. What is he talking about here? He's making a distinction. There is something different here. I want to explain it to you. The law of Moses has been replaced by the law of Christ. We don't talk about the law of Christ a lot, but this is the replacement for the law of Moses. We're talking old covenant, new covenant, and we are under the new. Galatians 6 says, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. There it is again. Where does this come from? How do we get to this point? Jesus, in Matthew 22, is being asked a question about the law of Moses. And Jesus has not yet died on the cross. He has not yet replaced the old covenant. But he answers the question this way. The man says, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here is what is so important. He says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What Jesus is saying is that the law and the prophets, the old covenant law, the Mosaic law, all of that is not the ultimate expression of God's moral law. The law of Moses is one application of God's moral law. It's based on these two commandments. I'm gonna illustrate it for you, and I hope this will help it make some sense. First, we have God's moral law. This is based on his character and his will. From God's moral law, we get the application of the law of Moses. And that's the old covenant. We also get the application of the law of Christ. And that is the new covenant. The author of Hebrews explains it this way. He says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. 
This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. And this is Hebrews chapter 10. He's quoting Jeremiah. So this was prophesied long in advance. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. Not on stone, not on papyrus. I will write them on their minds. My laws will go right into their hearts. It's a new covenant. See, the law of Christ has replaced the law of Moses. It's the good thing that replaced the shadow, the dim preview of what was to come. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose that you have a house that you are going to rent out. And you have a rental agreement template that you're going to use to form a contract with this person, an agreement for them to rent your house. And they come to you and they say, you know what? I have this beloved pet turtle. I love my pet turtle. Anybody have a pet turtle? I'm not saying I love it. I'm saying this person loves their pet turtle. I don't have a pet turtle. My dogs would destroy a pet turtle. And they have this beloved pet turtle and they come to you and they say, I want to include it, but your rental agreement says no animals. And so you decide you're going to make a little adjustment to that based on their current situation and their setting. You're gonna tweak that a little bit based on their circumstances and make an exception for their turtle. And so they live there for a while and then they move and you get a new renter. New renter comes along and says, I don't care about the turtle thing, but I would like to make some changes to the house if that's okay and I will pay for them myself. But your rental agreement says, I'm not allowed to do any of that. So if I sign this, I, I can't do it. Would you consider making an adjustment? And, the, and you decide, well, yeah, that sounds like a great deal. So I am going to take my rental template agreement and I'm gonna make a few modifications to that based on your circumstances and your situation to make it best apply to your setting right now and what we are agreeing to. Now, this is not a perfect analogy. Don't try to find all sorts of meaning in everything I just said about turtles and house changes, okay? I just want to illustrate this one point. If something happens with that second tenant and you have to take them to court, can you use the rental agreement from the first renter to enforce rules on the second renter? No, because that agreement was between you and this person, not you and this person. But here's the thing, a lot of the language is the same. It's based on the same rental agreement template. Most of it is the same, but you could never go to renter number two and say, because of what is in this contract with renter number one, you have to do this. No, you have to use the new agreement because that's what applies to them, even though some of the things are the same. It's the same way with the law of Moses. God's moral law is the template based on his character and his will. The law of Moses and the law of Christ for us, these are applications of that law given to us. And yes, much of the law of Christ is the same as or enhances laws in the law of Moses. But even where they line up, we don't follow it because it's in the law of Moses. We follow it because it's in the law of Christ. So to put it simply, we are not bound by the law of Moses even where it aligns with the law of Christ. Now does that mean that the law is useless today, the law of Moses? No, it's an example. It's an example of of the same God that we serve interacting with other people in another time through a different covenant. It gives us a window into his operations, a picture into his character, his faithfulness, his long-suffering, How the people 
under that covenant broke it and he was forgiving and they broke it again and he was forgiving and they broke it again and he was forgiving. When you read the Old Testament and understand the law of Moses, you can appreciate what God was doing leading up to the time when Jesus would fulfill that law. And the law of Moses is a great example of how we could never be acceptable to God on our own because we would have to do everything that is in it perfectly from the moment we are born to the moment that we die in order to be acceptable by God. And so the law shows us there's no way we could do that. Many, many people tried. It didn't work. The law of Moses was not God's ultimate expression of how to be made right with him. It demonstrated to us that we cannot on our own be made right with him. But it's not useless. It's not pointless to study or understand, but it's not binding. You cannot use it to prove to someone that they should or should not do something today. And the great thing is you don't have to. You don't have to. There is nothing in the law of Moses that you would want to teach today that isn't somehow improved upon by Jesus and the apostles. I'll give you an example. The law of Moses said don't murder. Jesus said, I'm going to take that one step further. That's a good thing. But if you even have hatred or resentment in your heart toward a person, it's as if you've committed murder against them in God's eyes. That's a new bar. The law of Moses said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, if you even look at a person with lust in your heart, that's like you're committing adultery in God's eyes. He's raising the standard. Of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are enhanced in the New Testament. Only one of them is not repeated. In fact, it is directly refuted or excluded by Paul in Colossians, and that is the commandment about the Sabbath. And Paul says in Colossians, that's no longer in effect. So don't miss this. Recognizing that the law of Moses no longer applies does not mean that God's moral law is now absent. We simply have a better application of it. There is a great video made by a group called The Bible Project. And these guys do incredible work. And it doesn't go into all of the scripture behind this, which is why I wanted to start there. But I want to show you this video because it presents in an animated form a wonderful overview of everything we have just talked about. We've now walked through the scriptural support for it. And so now I think that you will probably have an even better appreciation for and understanding of what they are talking about. Having been, through, having been through our message today. Let me show you this video. It's an overview of the law of Moses becoming the law of Christ. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family. 
who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. 
He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. I want to take you to the verse that they just mentioned in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. At the very end, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements or the purpose of God's law. And that's what they were talking about right at the end. But he goes on to say, For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. And then back in Galatians, Paul says, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. By the way, that freedom he's talking about is freedom from the law of Moses. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Remember how God said that he would write his law in our hearts. That's what he's talking about right here. That's what Paul is talking about. Let the Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Why do we follow some parts of the Bible and not others? Because that's what the Bible teaches. We are not under the law of Moses. So should we forget about the law of Moses and just do away with it? No. It's, it teaches us about God's plan for his people, how he interacts with his world, about his faithfulness, and about the need for Jesus who would come and fulfill the purpose of the law. But should we ever point to the law as the reason for a principle today? No. And we don't need to. There is nothing in the law of Moses that we should follow today that isn't given by Jesus and his apostles under the law of Christ. And we don't follow it because it's in the law of Moses. That's a different agreement with a different people. We follow it because it's part of the law of Christ. And it fulfills the purpose for the law of Moses. Now there is great freedom in this teaching. One of the best freedoms today is the freedom from being inconsistent and having accusations of being a hypocrite and not following parts of the Bible that we should. We have a phenomenal explanation for why we don't follow the mitzvah in the Torah. And yet it is still valuable and it is still important. But the greatest freedom of all comes from trusting in Jesus. When you do that, the Bible says, and we just read, God puts his Holy Spirit in you and gives you new desires, a new heart with God's moral law written on it. He enables you to do the good that you never could have before. 
And even more importantly, God now sees you as someone who has kept the law perfectly, even though you didn't. Because Jesus did and his perfection gets applied to you and your heart. See, Jesus did for you what the law of Moses never could. He made you acceptable to God. Not because of your good works, not because of anything you could have ever done, but because of faith in Jesus. To quote Paul again, we read this earlier, you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Do you want to know more about that faith? Maybe you're here and this has been a real stumbling block for you to trust in what Jesus has done because you see the inconsistency. Maybe this has cleared up some things for you, but you have more questions, you want to know more. We're gonna have a prayer team up here after one more song, and they would love to talk with you about what it means to have faith in Jesus. I'll be back in the lobby if you have questions. We would love to introduce you to Jesus and what it means to have God's law written on your hearts and to have the Holy Spirit give you desires that are good to follow after what God wants. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, This is a a challenging but necessary thing for us to talk about, Lord. And it has become such a confusing thing in the church today and in the world today. And so I pray that you would help us to represent you well, not as a, a God who expects inconsistencies, not as a people who are hypocrites and pick and choose what they follow, but people who have incredible, reasonable expectations on what we follow in your word and what we don't and why. Help us to represent that well, God. Help us to never point to something that you don't intend to be our covenant as a reason for why we do something and help us to recognize that we don't need to. And I pray that you would help us live that out this week, Lord, that we would pursue the law of Christ, that we would let your spirit guide and direct us, that we would always act out of love for you and love for others and so fulfill the purpose of your law in the first place. We pray this in your holy name, amen.